What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Rock and roll is all about fighting the man. And if you're a musician, there's no bigger man than the music biz. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. We play some of the best songs ever written about the record industry. And we'll review a new release from the California psych rock group, The Warlocks. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and from time to time, Greg, we love to do these shows where we have the best songs about a particular theme. We've had this notion for a while of uh, best songs in rock history about the music business. The first thing that popped in my head was the under-assistant West Coast promotion man by the Rolling Stones. That's a great choice, Jim, but uh, as you know, on Sound Opinions, we like to go a little bit deeper than the Beatles and the Stones. We, we have a ban on the Stones and the Beatles for this particular show. We need to go one level, two level deeper than that. Well, we'll play our tunes in a minute, but first, some music news. Some of you may recognize that song. That's the Beastie Boys Girls as it was appropriated in a jingle for an online video by a California toy and game company. The video shows a bunch of girls playing and creating cool stuff. They are young scientists in the making, young entrepreneurs in the making. The video has been a huge hit. Millions of views online, incredible praise from the media for this empowering message that it is sending to young girls. And the, uh, the California company that is behind the ad, Goldie Blocks, a San Francisco startup that makes toys and games designed to encourage girls to learn about science and technology, has now filed a suit against the Beastie Boys, a preemptive suit, if you will, claiming fair use of their song for this video parody. Normally, in a case like this, a company would seek permission from the artist or the publisher to use the song or appropriate the song in the ad. Goldie Blocks just went ahead and used the song, but they say it's covered under fair use. Its suit says specifically the song was used to comment on the Beastie Boys song and to further the company's goal to break down gender stereotypes. They also go on to say that the song has been recognized by the press and the public as a parody and criticism of the original song. So in other words, they're saying, okay, fair use, it's appropriate for them to parody the song in the video. They're also claiming that the Beastie Boys had threatened Goldie Blocks with copyright infringement, which is why they're suing in the first place. This recalls what happened a few months ago 
when Robin Thicke and his team filed that preemptive lawsuit against the Marvin Gaye estate for the song Blurred Lines, which appropriated some of Marvin Gaye's arrangements and melody for a song that he had a hit with in the 70s. So now we're seeing part two of this. The Beastie Boys are responding and say, wait a minute, we didn't do anything yet and you're already suing us? However, the Beastie Boys have long been noted for the fact that they do not want their music used in any sort of advertising. In an open letter, the Beastie Boys said that they were impressed by the creativity and the message and that we strongly support empowering young girls, breaking down gender stereotypes, etc., but adding, make no mistake, your video is an advertisement that is designed to sell a product. And long ago, we made a conscious decision not to permit our music and or name to be used in product ads. When we tried to simply ask how and why our song Girls had been used in your ad without our permission, you sued us. Well, we'll see how all of that pans out, Greg. But speaking of uh, music and commercials, let's say you're sitting watching TV and you hear this catchy ditty. At Honda, we know some people are never satisfied with a good idea and work day and night until they end up in a place that no one ever dreamed of because they know that things can always be better. Well, us too. Now, you want to know who that artist is. I mean, you could ask me or you when we tell you it's Santi Gold in that car commercial. But a really handy way to do this is with the Shazam app, right? You hold it up. You know, if you're listening to something on the radio, you're listening to something on TV. If you're in a store or if you're at a party, right, you just hold up your phone and you, you open Shazam and it will identify the song for you. Now, Shazam has increasingly been tied to advertising and identifying songs that are being used in ads. Some 80 million people a month use Shazam to identify tunes that they have heard during commercials. It it was tied into a third of the Super Bowl commercials last year. It's not enough just to be able to identify the song in the commercial. Now advertising and marketing types are trying to tie in advertising to the music even more than it already is. Think back to Nick Drake and Pink Moon being used in Volkswagen. That's not enough. They want to go another level. And this increasing use of iPads and iPhones while watching TV to get a second level of content. Let's say it's a car commercial. You can get a 30-second tour of the interior of the car, right? There's a new initiative now by Shazam with the giant media services agency Mindshare for a program called Audio Plus, which is going to make it harder to separate a song used in an advertisement from advertising content. Let's look at a commercial that failed, right? Microsoft used Alex Clare's song Too Close in a commercial last year. And that track became a huge hit. But when you went to Shazam to identify it, you got no Microsoft advertising content. Now, even if you're just Google searching this song, if it happened to be used in a commercial, you're going to get that extra advertising content. It's becoming kind of more and more insidious. Where does art end and commerce begin? I don't know. Don't hedge your bets. Double down if you want to get ahead in Tinseltown. Turn that smile upside down. Happy people don't have sex. 
Greg, that is a number one UK hit from Robbie Williams, Swings Both Ways. We're not just going to talk about Robbie Williams because I know you love him. In <laughs> fact, we were we were talking about that new UK pop phenom, John Newman, a couple of weeks ago. And you were saying, I, I can't understand this guy, but I've been trying to figure out Robbie Williams for years now. Still trying. Still trying. Well, let me tell you why Robbie Williams is important. He has just scored the 1,000th number one hit album in the history of the British charts. Since the charts were launched in 1956, more than 3,000 weeks worth of charts have been published with number ones. The Beatles have traditionally been the most frequent visitors to the top of the charts, but Robbie Williams now has 11 number ones as a solo artist, putting him equal to Elvis Presley. And if you count Williams' time before the solo years as a member of Take That, he's been at number one 15 times, which puts him equal to the Beatles and arguably as good as the Beatles. The other trivia note I love about this is Williams' album is called Swings Both Ways. As I said, the 1,000th number one album in the history of the British charts. The first, you want to take a guess about what it was? I'll guess another British artist that I don't understand, Cliff Richard. No, 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 no. 1956, Frank Sinatra, Songs for Swingin' Lovers, and now a thousand number ones later, Robbie Williams, Swings Both Ways. So you still want to do the show business, and you think that you got what it takes? I mean, you really got to rap and be all that, and prepare yourself for the breaks. Check it out. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and I love that track. That is a tribe called Quest with Show Business. Greg, we are about to pick some of our favorite songs in rock history that are about the business, about the music business. Yes, we are, Jim. To me, protest songs have a big, wide umbrella, and this is one of the big subgenres of protest music. If you want to get a musician ticked off protesting something, Talk to him about the music industry, and they will give you a screed like you've never heard. A bunch of them have put that bile into some really great pop songs. A great tradition of biting the hand that feeds them. But we thought we should start things on a positive (laughs) note with our traditional coin toss. Greg, how about a music business hero on your side of the coin. Well, I'm going to pick a guy who's been on the show before, Jack Holzman, the founder of Electro Records, one of the true great record industry guys. And I'll go with one of the heads of Matador Records, uh, the irascible Gerard Cosloy. The coin is in the air, and it's down, and it is your choice, Mr. Cott. You get to go first. Jack Holzman wins, and I win. I wanted to pick the most bilious protest song that I could think of. That is by one Graham Parker. Actually, I just played a track on the Desert On Jukebox from Graham Parker, an unjustifiably under-recognized artist out of the U.K. in the 70s, and he was feeling that pain, too. He put out three critically acclaimed albums with Mercury Records in the late 70s, but he wasn't getting a lot of love, especially in the United States. None of those records cracked the top 100, and he was watching contemporaries like Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds, Joe Jackson, getting all sorts of attention in the States. And Parker took it personally. He dumped Mercury. He moved on to another label in 1979 and put out an album called Squeezing Out Sparks, which justified his own self-belief in how good he was. That record went number 18 in the U.S., became the biggest commercial success of his career. Not only did he have the last laugh on Mercury, but he also got in a parting shot by putting out a song called Mercury 
poisoning. You can't get more blatant than that, putting the name of your ex-record company in the title of your song. And, you know, I won't make any great claims for the lyrical nuance in this song. It is just straight on, I hate you, I got a dinosaur (laughs) for a representative, it's got a small brain and refuses to learn. Those are just some sample lyrics from this song. And ironically, one of his strongest hooks ever. Indeed. You know, Parker could write great rock soul songs, and this is one of them. Graham Parker, Mercury Poisoning, on Sound Opinions. No more pretending now the albatross is dying in its nest. The company is crippling me the worst, trying to ruin the best. best. A death promotion so late. They could never ever take it to the real ball game. Maybe they think I'm a pet. Well, I got all the diseases. I'm breaking out in sweat. You bet, cuz I've got mercury poisoning. It's fatal and it don't get better. I've got mercury poisoning. The best kept secret in the West. The boys and me are getting real well known around town. But every time I try to spread the action, something always brings it down. Down, 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 down. I ate the orange and I don't feel well. For them it's inconvenience, for me it's hell. The geriatric stop that were freaks. They couldn't suck it back to the freaks. The geeks, the fashion speaks. And I got mercury poisoning. It's fatal and it don't get better. I got mercury poisoning. The best kept secret in the West. Is this a Russian conspiracy? No, it's just idiocy. Is this a Chinese? Graham Parker spitting out some bile at the record industry on mercury poisoning on Sound Opinions. Jim, what's your first pick for a great record industry song? Well, Greg, we're going to jump around throughout history. I have a feeling we'll be coming back to the punk era, which Parker was part of, the tail end. But I'm going to jump ahead now to the late 80s, in that period when lawsuits were being filed that would set precedents about what was fair use for artists to sample and what they would have to pay through the nose for or what they would not be able to use at all. I'm thinking of... Public Enemy's fantastic second album, 1988, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. And Chuck D in the track, Caught, Can We Get a Witness, is mad about a couple of things in the business. In the third verse, he's taking some shots at radio. I declared war on black radio, he raps, because they're not playing Public Enemy, right? But what he's most angry about is the court not understanding sampling. Caught, now in court, because I stole a beat. This is a sampling sport, but I'm giving it a new name. What you hear is mine, P.E., you know the time. 
Chuck D and the incredible sound collages that they were making with Public Enemy, you know, they believed that the, that the use of all of these minute fractions of a sample of a tune that they sometimes turned inside out and upside down and played with the speed, that they weren't necessarily recognizable as the song being sampled. They were creating something new. And yet the courts were suddenly saying that artists like the Beastie Boys on Paul's Boutique or Public Enemy weren't able to use sampling in this way. This ticked Chuck D off. And Chuck D is not a guy you want to tick off, right? Later in the in the track he raps, sample this, my pit bull. <laughs> Chuck is angry. I don't think there's a lot of songs about the business of sampling. This is definitely the best of them. Public enemy caught. Can we get a witness on sound opinions? Caught now in court because I stole a beat. This is a sampling sport. But I'm giving it a new name. What you hear is my P.E. You know the time. Now what in the heaven does a jury know about hell if I took it? But they just look at me. Like, hey, I'm on a mission. Check it out, y'all. Conditions ain't right. Sitting like dynamite. Gonna blow you up and it just might. Blow up the bitchin'. Judge the courtroom plus I got a mention. This court is dismissed when I grab the mic, yo, play. What is this? What y'all think y'all doing bringing us to court for this guy and saying we stealing beats? Y'all can't copyright no beats, man. Yo, judges they crazy, man. Yeah, hype. Come on, we gotcha. Gather around, gotcha. Can we get a witness from Public Enemy on Sound Opinions? Jim DeRogatis is a great example of a track about the music industry. We also want to hear from you on this topic. What songs best skewer or celebrate the record business? Call us at 888-859-1800. You can also connect to us on Facebook and Twitter. When we return on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll continue with our lists. And then the Warlocks give us Skull Worship.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're running down some of the great songs that have been written about the music industry. And Jim, I gotta say, in my research on this topic, I know a lot of these songs already, but generally they tend to be against the music industry. You don't hear too many people cheerleading about it. When they want to write a song about the music industry, they're generally pretty ticked off. Well, there was Nick Lowe's I Love My Label, but he was ironic, I think. (laughs) Yes, I think you're right. Now, the reason I chose this next song is because I think it's more shaded. There's a, there's a little more gray in it. You can l- read a lot into it. It doesn't necessarily have to apply to the music industry, which is one of the reasons it's so great. But I think given the history of the songwriter, you can certainly see where she's coming from. This is Amy Mann with a song called Nothing Is Good Enough. Now, after two albums with Geffen Records, a major label in the early 90s, she split with the label. In fact, she talks about this period in her life in the late 90s where she wasn't even sure that she wanted to make music or records anymore because her experience with the label was so dispiriting. And then in 1999, her friend Paul Thomas Anderson asked her to contribute some songs to the soundtrack for Magnolia, which ended up getting her an Academy Award and a Grammy Award and basically revived her career. She breaks ties with Geffen, forms her own super ego record. She was one of the pioneers in going independent on the Internet. And the next year, she releases an album called Bachelor Number 2 that includes Nothing Is Good Enough. Now, as I said, it's a wonderful song, great melody. Lyrics aren't particularly direct. A lot of reading into this song, but it's hard not to associate certain members of Geffen Records and the A&R staff when you hear lines like, it doesn't really help that you can never say what you're looking for, but you'll know it when you hear it, know it when you see it walk through the door, so you say, so you've said many times before. This sort of devastating sense of resignation about always trying to please the man and the man saying, "Mm, not good enough. I can't tell you what I want, but that's not good enough. Amy Mann, nothing is good enough on Sound Opinions. Critics at the worst could never criticize the way that you do. No, there's no one else I find to undermine or dash a hoe quite like you. And you do it so casually too. Take the fall. And something to sabotage, determined to live. 
doesn't really help that you can never say what you're looking for. But you'll know it when you hear it, know it when you see it, walk through the door. So you say, so you said many times before. Nothing is good enough by Amy Mann, an artist we both love, Greg, even if the music business didn't. So you want to be a rock and roll star. Okay, 1967. The birds already were cynical about the business of turning young musicians into stars. They had just seen the creation of the monkeys when they wrote this song and recorded it for the Younger Than Yesterday album. But I'm not going to play the original. I want to go to Patti Smith's reinterpretation of the song in 1979 for her fourth album, Wave. You know, Patti almost makes it a celebration because in the punk years, nobody thought anymore that you were going to be embraced by a record company and turned into a star. And yet, to some extent, it was happening to Patti Smith. But she came from the punk ethos. She worked in a factory in New Jersey to scrape up the money, borrowing more from friends like Robert Mapplethorpe to put out her first single, right? I mean, you know, punk was DIY. So that little spoken word breakdown in the middle of the song that she adds that isn't there when the birds did it, hey, you, come here, get up. This is the era where everybody creates. I love that. I love that that line. It's the same thing she did when she covered Van Morrison's Gloria and added that introduction. You know, Patti Smith can really make a song her own like nobody else. Still, the cynicism lives on when you pay for all these riches and fame. It's a vicious game. Patti Smith Group with So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star on Sound Opinions.
Patti Smith with her great cover of So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star on Sound Opinions, a great track about the music industry. Jim, you had played a Public Enemy track earlier, and I want to return to the world of hip-hop. I think there's been a lot of great hip-hop tracks about the corrupting power of money on the integrity of hip-hop. You know, you find a lot of songs in this area where it's an artist talking about me and how I'm offended by the way my record company is treating me. But in a lot of these hip-hop tracks, the best of them, they talk about sort of the wider issues, about how the soul of hip-hop has been corrupted by money and greed. You know, we played Tribe Called Quest show business up at the top. Commons, I Used to Love Her is a great example. Ultras, The Industry is Whack. The Fun Loving Criminals with The Biz. You know, they, they sort of paint this broader picture. Another great example of that is this group Black Alicious out of California. Basically a duo, Gift of Gab, the MC, and the DJ producer, Chief Excel. They made three great albums, the first of which was called Naya in 1999, which this song comes from. Gift of Gab turns this track, Deception, into a moral tale that plays out over these three verses. You, you hear the artist deceiving himself about what matters, and, he, and he's paying the price at the end. You know, he loses his credibility, then he loses his career. This fascinating tale. Blackalicious deception on Sound Opinions. This is a story of a kid, his name is Cisco. Who made more money than the count of Monte Crisco. He lived a lavish style of life, fast money, women, cars, and he liked to frequent bars, pubs, and discos. Made his living as a world-famous rap star. When he first started, my respects what he was after. So he got inside his mind, day and night, and he bright constantly his art and craft he tried to master. Started winning local battles and his rap grew. Gave his crew a reputation as the best crew. And what life would do to him, all the cards that was hard, pen and pad, stress relief would be his refuge. Paid his dues, doing shows, now he's on track. In the lab, pumping demos, making songs fast. Then he quit his nine to five, finally his time arrived. When he signed a major label record. Blackalicious with the song Deception, about the deception that the music industry plays on these young hip-hop artists' unsound opinions. Jim, what do you got next? Well, as noted earlier, Greg, we declared this a Rolling Stones free zone, or we would have gone with the under-assistant West Coast promotion man, which I just love because of the portrait of Mm -hmm. a mid-level record company nebbish. But 
you didn't only get those songs in the 60s. The alternative rock era, I think, now that we're 20 years past it, we can see as the last gasp of the old school music industry, the thousand dollar dinners where bands are being wined and dined and flown around and courted by the major label system, which really wouldn't exist much longer. Local H was a Chicago duo, guitar and drums, led by Scott Lucas with the original drummer Joe Daniels that had some success for the 1996 album As Good As Dead. Remember, it it spawned a couple of alt-era radio hits, high-fiving MF and Eddie Vedder and most of all Bound for the Floor. But their relationship with Island was contentious, Island Records, especially because when it came time to make album number two. They made a very good one, Pack Up the Cats, two years later, 1998. But Island was merging with Polygram, merging with Universal, but, you know, those record company consolidations, and the record was completely lost. I think that Local H saw this coming, and they recorded a song called Laminate Man. Now, if you've never been to a record industry convention like South by Southwest or any record industry gathering, everybody has these laminated tags around their neck, right? Now, every convention has that, right? But the obnoxious thing in the music world is that the higher-up executives take the tag and they put it in their shirt pocket, (laughs) thereby defeating the purpose of wearing the tag so you can't tell who they are so you don't bother them to do their job and maybe listen to your music. Scott Lucas, I think, is a very funny and underrated lyricist. He, He writes, you want to turn me around by the resume around my neck the laminate, right? Hand in hand on the witness stand, making time with what you got. You want to jerk me around with your resume around your neck. You're going to buy us with the ease of a virus and disease. <laughs> I think this is one of the great alternative rock era anti-music biz songs. Laminate Man by Local H on Sound Opinions.
Local H with Laminate Man, another great song about the music business. Greg, what's your last pick? Jim, in some ways I'm saving the best for last. When we first talked about the idea of this show, this was the song that immediately popped into my head, and I'm going to play it now. You spit it out so quick, (laughs) I didn't even have a chance to name it before you got to it. I I beat you to it. I think it's near and dear to both of our hearts, and anybody who grew up or was around this era when the Sex Pistols were first making waves, people perhaps now don't realize how much controversy they caused in England when they first emerged, signing their first record deal in October of 76 with a major label, EMI, put out their first single, Anarchy in the UK, in November of that year. By December, the Sex Pistols were already ticking off their label. They appeared on a television talk show in London where they exchanged naughty words with the host, uh, Bill Grundy. And from that point on, were basically public enemy number one in the UK as far as the media was concerned. Heathrow Airport in January of 77, they were supposedly spitting each other and throwing insults at the airport staff. And at this point, EMI says, we've had enough. We're we're basically cutting you guys off. We're letting you go. The biggest band in England at the time being let go by their major label. Even a member of parliament got into the act, writing the president <laughs> of EMI saying, surely a group of your size and reputation could forego the doubtful privilege of sponsoring trash like the Sex Pistols. So EMI caves in and lets the Sex Pistols go. Then A&M, another major label, signs them to a deal in March of 77. A week later, they let the Sex Pistols go (laughs) because they've had enough of them. Finally, Virgin Records, uh, the third label in like six months that signs the Sex Pistols because they are so incorrigible, puts the group together, allows them to make an album, which becomes, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, one of the greatest punk albums of all time. And on that record, this song appears. It is basically Johnny Rotten's uncensored viewpoint of his relationship with EMI, also a a reference to A&M at the end, basically saying, you guys all stink. I hate you. I want you to die and go to hell, as far as I'm concerned. The Sex Pistols with EMI on Sound Opinions.
Johnny Rotten, what a sneer. EMI by the Sex Pistols on Sound Opinions. Perhaps an obvious choice, Greg, but a great one. I'm going to go with another obvious choice, but a great one. No two ways you can get around it. Have a Cigar by Pink Floyd is one of the best tracks ever about the music business. I think Pink Floyd has become such an icon of classic rock radio that we don't often think about the tunes and how smart they are. I mean, the song sounds amazing. Wish You Were Here is, is the I think, the best recorded of Pink Floyd's great albums. It's an astonishing sonic accomplishment. But the lyrical sense of humor in this song, now, you have to realize where they were in 1975. The Dark Side of the Moon had taken them from this obscure English underground cult band to becoming the best-selling rock band in the world for a very long stretch. The Dark Side of the Moon is still on the top of the list for the best-selling albums ever. Longest time at number one. Broke every record there was to break. They weren't expecting this. They were used to making weird albums that nobody listened to, right? (laughs) And suddenly the music industry, which has never really paid any attention to them from the beginning in the 60s, is looking at them long and hard. They are having meetings in boardrooms. These were slacker kind of guys that did not like meetings in boardrooms, and they're meeting with executives in suits with cigars. And they're saying things like these executives, come in here, dear boy, have a cigar, right? And Pink Floyd doesn't know what to make of this. I think one of the things that make the song special is that it's it's one of only two songs throughout the Floyd's catalog that isn't sung by anybody in the group. They invited the great singer-songwriter from the UK, a a UK underground hero, Roy Harper, to come in and sing the song. A a legendary musician who, you know, Led Zeppelin wrote a song about him and he was a hero of The Who, is singing this song and, and making the pitch. I've always had a deep respect, and I mean that most sincere, the executive is saying, right? The band is just fantastic. That's really what I think. Oh, by the way, which one's Pink? And Pink Floyd actually had things like this said to them, you know, where they're being kissed up to by the industry. One of you guys must be Pink. I'd like to meet Pink, right? (laughs) And, of course, Waters got a lot of mileage out of this later with The Wall. But I think as a statement on the record industry, Have a Cigar is the best they ever gave us. Here's Pink Floyd on Sound Opinions. Call it Riding the Gravy Train. Pink Floyd with Have a Cigar on Sound Opinions. That wraps up our list of songs about the music business. To check them out again, visit soundopinions.org. Coming up, we review Skull Worship by L.A. psychedelic rockers The Warlocks. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called Chameleon from the new Warlocks album, Skull Worship. Jim, I did a uh, Desert Island jukebox on these guys earlier this year, wondering, are they ever going to come back? I mean, their last record was in 2009. I hadn't heard anything. I thought this was a terrific band, and I wondered if we would ever get another record from them. Well, lo and behold, here it is. Bobby Heckscher is the main cog in this band. Guitarist, songwriter, he's the guy that writes many of the songs. He's a former member of the Brian Jonestown Massacre in L.A. in the 90s. He was a bassist with Beck briefly. He knocked around that L.A. scene before forming the Warlocks in 1998. And over the 15 years since then, he's had a rotating series of lineups. He's the main guy, but I've seen anywhere from five to eight or nine people on stage with the Warlocks. I mean, when you would get the full-on Warlocks experience with like three or four guitar players doing this music, it could be simply overwhelming. Currently, they're in a five-piece incarnation. And as I said, it's been a while between albums. They had a nice little run there where they made five albums in a relatively short period of time. It's been a pretty fractured history, though. They got signed to a relatively big label, Mute Records. That didn't work out so well. They got dropped an album later. They recorded another album in a weekend, and the entire band basically quit after that recording came out. So the fact that they're still with us is somewhat of a minor miracle. Here's the new album. It's called Skull Worship. The track is called Dead Generation from the Warlocks on Sound Opinions. Dead Generation by the Warlocks from the Skull Worship album on Sound Opinions. Only last week, we did a show-length tribute to the late Lou Reed, and we were talking about the influence of the Velvet Underground. I saw a couple of tweets from listeners saying, you don't need to tell us how influential the Velvet Underground was. Thanks for pointing out the obvious. And yet here we have one of the most exciting records of the year, basically picking one tiny element. As we pointed out, there were a 100 directions that bands followed from that Velvet's blueprint. These guys are doing one element of it. They are doing the heavy drone, the insistent rhythm of 
the mechanical propulsive thing that keeps moving forward like a subway train, and yet there's melody. There's a lot of melody. I love the way that these songs insinuate themselves inside your head, even as they kind of hypnotize you and put you in this druggy stupor, even if you've had nothing but coffee during the day. I just love this record. It is not reinventing the wheel. I don't think that that we can credit them with doing anything new, really. But whether you're talking about the Jesus and Mary chain or Spaceman 3, few people have done this this droning kind of hypnotic rock better. I, I love this record. It's a buy it record. Jim, I love this band, but I don't love this record. I think it's a good record, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it ranks with their best work. I really? mean, they've had that consistent sound over the years, that sinister sound, that droning dark mix of punk, garage rock, psychedelia. This one's a little slower developing. The first couple of songs are kind of in the vein of their more hard-charging stuff, and then it just sort of winds down to the point where it kind of snoozes off at the end. No, 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 man. You're being lulled Uh, into a space that turns out to be darker than you bargained for. Well, they find the sweet spot, as you were talking about, with that space on a song called Silver and Plastic, right in the middle of the record with that cello as the lead instrument on the record. I love where Hexture is bringing the band in that particular space. But then it slows down even further, and it gets to the point where you're thinking, well, these, these tracks sort of feel tacked on. So it's not a complete success. It's a burn-it record for me. A burn-it for Greg, a buy-it for me. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Jim, uh, one of the most anticipated shows of the year, as far as we're concerned, right? Our best records of 2013. Yay! Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Anthony Martinez, and our intern is Jake Smith. And an interesting note on the way out, a wax cylinder recording, the oldest known in existence, 120 years old, of a black vocal group just sold at auction. The unique quartet, $1,100. That was a bargain. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Billy in Dallas. I just got through listening to the turkey shoot episode. Something that you slipped in a couple times, I'm guessing probably unintentionally, stuck out to me. You referred to, I think it was the 91 My Bloody Valentine album, or some old flaming list material as important. Not important to you, which would totally make sense. But when a rock critic says something is important, it just comes off as incredibly pretentious, as if I have to agree with that or I should feel guilty that I don't. And to be honest, neither one of those things were really compellingly important to me. I think Ghost in the Machine was an important album. That doesn't mean everybody else should. Okay, well, they should. But I'm not the guy on the radio, and I think you guys are better than that. Anyway, just something to keep an eye on.
Hi, this is Steve from Milwaukee, and I just got through hearing the life and career of Lou Reed. For me, uh, Lou Reed and the Velvets mean everything in my life, and the cliche when people ask you, what kind of music are you into, I, I just respond simply by saying, music that is derivative of the Velvet Underground, simply put. You know her life was saved by rock and roll. Hey guys, this is Colby from uh, Chicago, Illinois, and I remember uh, for Christmas when I was a sophomore in high school, my brother gave me three albums for Christmas. He gave me Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan, Everyone Who Pretended to Like Me is Gone by The Walkman, and the third one was The Velvet Underground Loaded. And when I first listened to the lyrics, it said, two TV sets and two Cadillac cars, well, you know, ain't going to help me at all. Something about that just kind of sent me on uh, the path that made me uh, care about music in a totally different way. So thanks for the show, and talk to you later. This message is for Greg and Jim. Hi, my name is Mike. I live in northern Illinois. That was a very interesting show you did on Lou Reed. However, there was one glaring, blaring omission, and that was the album uh, Rock and Roll Animal. The uh, first four minutes or so of that album is astounding. It's got some of the most ferocious dueling electric guitar playing I've ever heard in my entire life. That guitar playing uh, Jimmy Page would have killed for. Anyhow, that's my opinion, however sound it is. Thanks, bye. Hi, this is Dick Grayson. I uh, was brought up in the Italian ghetto of Greenwich Village, and uh, we used to uh, amble out of that enclave as far north as Max's Kansas City, where Lou Reed and held court with the people that were allowed in the back of that room. To hear your show, to hear Lou Reed in any incantation, in any Form that he was in is to bring back a New York City that no longer exists. Outside, it's a bright night. There's an opera at Lincoln Center. Movie stars arrive by limousine. The Klieg lights shoot up over the skyline of Manhattan, but the lights are out on the mean streets. It belongs in a time capsule with 42nd Street and Playland, and you guys are doing a great job in keeping up that. Thanks so much. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.